Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Kevin. I appreciate that. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Thank you. I appreciate that that there are people like yourself and Stephanie and all the others who work on the leadership team here. It's, uh, you know, these are volunteer positions and they are pouring their time and, and hearts into it. And it's really, it's really wonderful. One of the things that really struck me, what, what he's talking about there in terms of like, you know, we, we, at one point we looked at our bank account and we realized there's, there's money here and this isn't what our goal was. Our goal was never to have money. You know, and so we, I mean, I mean, we're laughing, but I mean, that's the truth. It wasn't, that was not what we were setting out to do. So we prayed about it. Let's, let's give this away and get us down to what we need for the emergency. And we encountered a problem in that and then it won't go away. It, it keeps coming back in. Second Corinthians eight, Paul told us exactly that. He spoke to the church saying, God will always see to it that those who are generous have something to be generous with. So, there it is. God's doing that, and that's kind of cool. So, uh, anyway, appreciate appreciate you, Kevin. Appreciate everything that uh, is happening here. I appreciate you guys as a community. What a man! Where would I go to church if I didn't have you guys to hang out with? This is so awesome. So, uh, we're going to continue in our study in the Gospel of John this morning. If you've got a way to follow along, and if you'd like to, if you go to John chapter fifteen, please. Last week we finished up chapter fourteen, and. Uh, Jesus was assuring his disciples in that section that even though he wasn't with them, or even though he was preparing to be gone from them, not in, with them in the way that he had been, uh, he was still going to be with them, or, or more accurately, in them. This is what we looked at in, in the end of chapter 14. Through the agency of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was promising that he would be, remain with us through this different kind of interaction and dynamic of relationship, where God now dwells in us, through the Holy Spirit. And we considered the life that Jesus was describing there, filled with the Holy Spirit, who guides us, who comforts us, who provided us with peace, no matter what was going on in the world around us. So today Jesus is going to continue his parting instructions to his disciples, and we're going to look at the other side of this concept, where where we're instructed to live in Christ. So we go from the divine living in us to us living in the divine, and there's a sort of a chiastic rhythm to it uh, in the way that John is structuring it here in his gospel. And it's all going to be couched in a metaphor that will probably be familiar to us, the metaphor that we've heard if we've been around church uh, uh, a lot, but it was also something very significant to the ancient Israelites who were hearing him as well. So you'll, you'll see it as we go. If you're there in John Chapter 15, we're going to start with verse 1. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am the true grapevine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they'll produce even more fruit. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, and I'll remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, yeah, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who doesn't remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me... And my words remain in you. 
You may ask for anything you want, and it'll be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. Okay, we'll stop there for a minute. As I, as I said earlier, this is likely a familiar image, uh, that, uh, a saying, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. I'm sure you've heard that somewhere along the line in, in your contact with, with Christianity. Uh, I want to point out that this is the final I am statement that Jesus makes, the Ehiyah, the covenant name that God gave to Moses when Moses was before the burning bush getting instructions to go and set the Israelites free from Egypt. He said, well, who should I tell the Pharaoh sent me? And he said, tell them I am, Ehiyah, tell them I am sent you. In other words, God's expression of his self-existence, self-reliance, and his eternality. Jesus adopts that. John's gospel, as we pointed out through it, is structured around seven such sayings where Jesus attributes that to himself. So this is the final time that he's going to make that statement there. And the imagery that he's giving us, the vine and the branches, that's, I mean, it's it's pretty clear imagery and what it's conveying. You know, obviously Jesus is the source of these things, but but applying that image is a little bit trickier. For one thing, as I state over and over again, we've got to be careful not to read this through the lens of our own modern Christian point of view. Because, you know, his, his words certainly apply to us in our modern day. As modern day Western world Christians, it applies to it, but those words were not directed to us. They, they were spoken to and in the context of people in ancient Israel. And that's really, really important in this. Because the thing is, if we don't keep that in mind, Jesus' words here actually become kind of a mixed bag of images. And you're going to be like, what do you, what do you mean, Rob? Well, I mean, we certainly get the concept. Jesus is the source for our life and our ministry as, as his followers. He's the stock from which we branch out. But he also makes statements about remaining in him. And there's this unsettling bit there in verse 6 where it feels kind of like a threat. Like, and if the person doesn't remain in me, well, you know, they're going to wither and die and end up in a fire somewhere. And, and so literally, well, I can't say literally, but it, metaphorically, oceans of ink have, have been spilled over trying to decipher and figure out how to apply those words that Jesus said there. And it's, you know, it's tricky. And the reason it's tricky is because of the various doctrinal views held by different sections within the church. So those who hold to something called Arminianism will read these words and take this verse as as a, a warning. And they'll use it to warn people that if you don't toe the line, that somewhere down the line you could lose your salvation and end up on the wrong side of God's judgment. Those who hold to the reform view of such things believe in the eternal security of the elect. A saved person isn't going to lose their salvation. Uh, and, and so this little bit here becomes a monkey wrench, so... There's a workaround that, you know, it's, it's, it assumes association with Jesus and not actual attachment to the vine, meaning they weren't saved to begin with, even though the words does not remain connotes the idea of formerly belonging to something. Beyond that, the image itself, like if we're going to stick with the imagery itself, it's a, it's a weird image because like if a parent is not fruitful, or not producing anything, it's because it's diseased or it's been infested with, you know, pests or something like that. Branches don't just, you know, randomly 
disassociate. This is not disengaging from plants all over the place. So the thing is weird. It feels weird, to me at least. And I would say to others, because I've certainly read plenty of, uh, <laughs> of scholars trying to work their way through this. So that's what I mean about this having some kind of tricky imagery that we've got to work through in this. And that's why the context becomes so important in our reading of this so we can better understand it. Jesus didn't just spring this metaphor on his disciples. Now, you've even read commentaries where they say, you know, they say, well, Jesus was leaving the upper room and they were heading out to the Mount of Olives and he would have gone to the Kidron Valley and there's vineyards there. And so Jesus probably saw those vines and decided to use it as a teaching tool at the moment. But that is just an absolutely unnecessary conjecture. Jesus isn't just pulling this metaphor out of the air. He's not looking around trying to find an object lesson to teach with. We simply have to go back to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures that he and his disciples were steeped in to figure out what it is that he's saying here. Because it's all over the place once you go back to the Old Testament. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 18, Jeremiah 2, 21, Jeremiah 12, 10, Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 19, Hosea 10, Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5 says, uh, reads, Now you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? The imagery of a vine or a vineyard is all over the Hebrew scriptures always. Well, primarily, predominantly as an image of Israel, as an image of God's covenant people. Jesus is taking that image of Israel and he's applying it to himself. I am the true grapevine, meaning there's another one. There's something else, but it was just it was a type for the true one to come. He is the true fulfillment. He is the true vine. N.T. Wright put it this way, the picture of the vine isn't just a clever illustration from gardening. It's about who Jesus and his people really are and what is now going to happen to them as a result. So the big picture of what it is that Jesus is, is saying here, what's being communicated, is that God's people are now located in the person of Jesus. Jesus is taking the place of Israel as God's planting. And if one is to remain in covenant with God, we must do so now through Jesus. This is the point that he's making. And I should point out that every time that Jesus is saying you in this, it's in the plural. So it's y'all. It's, it's it, you know, it's, you remain in me and I'll remain in y'all. He is, he is not primarily, and, and here's the thing, as Westerners, we primarily read things on an individualistic basis. He's not speaking primarily to individuals. Certainly it's going to apply to us as individuals as we go down the, the line in this, but he's talking to people groups. That's why even there when he's saying, ask anything in my name, We don't walk away from that with this individualistic sense of, well, here he gave me a trick on personal prayer so that I can get God to do whatever I want. No, he's talking to people groups. If you're going to to do this, if you're going to go out and fulfill my mission, you ask it in my name and it's going to be happening. So it's not, you get what I'm saying in that? Okay, so so the people group of Israel, as Jesus is putting it, is no longer the vineyard. Jesus is. Jesus is. He's the one. And by saying this, he's pointing away from the vineyard as a place. 
as a, as a territory or a specific nation or geographical location. We could almost say that Jesus is spiritualizing the promised land. He steps into the place of what the promised land was supposed to represent. Jesus is now the site of God's habitation. There's no nation that uniquely represents God's people. God's people are in every nation, connected not through a plot of ground or a culture or a set of values, but connected through the person of Jesus. That's how God's kingdom goes worldwide. That's how God's kingdom spreads out and advances. That's how God's kingdom is doing greater works than he did because of the massive spread of this thing. So to be part of God's people through whom he's unfolding his purposes in this world is a matter of being united with Christ. Uh, that's, that's the big picture stuff. That's, that's even how we resolve the strangeness of verse 6. Because I believe he's speaking to those who considered themselves to be the covenant people who'd now have to revise their understanding of what that meant. It was at one time because I was connected to Israel. He's saying no. Now it's through me. And that's why Jesus' teachings, according to verse 3, had a pruning effect on his disciples. They were being shaped and focused on Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. They pruned it down to this one person, this narrow gate through whom we go. I Listen, I'm actually looking out here and I'm seeing a few people smiling, but I'm seeing a lot of glazed eyes. I, it's a lot. I, I get it. It's complex. Was it too much? Did, were you able to follow what I was saying in this? Okay. So, so he... Wait, wait what? <laughs> Oh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say you're stupid. I would not. I would not even dream of that. You maybe, but I. But. But. All right. Okay. So he he challenges his people, and he challenges his people multiple times in this text to be fruitful. And one of the things when you go back through the Old Testament usage of this metaphor over and over. Uh, was was saying that that earlier vineyard was not fruitful. In Isaiah 5, which we were just reading from, God said that he was looking for fruit, for justice and righteousness, and instead he found oppression and misery. But Jesus forecasts something different here for his disciples. By connecting to him, we will be fruitful. That is, they will display in their lives the reality of God's intent for the world. It's going to be different, basically, is what he's saying in this. As we stick close to Jesus and his way, we will produce fruit. What is that? Well, we will reproduce the image of Jesus. You know, an apple tree begets apples. A Jesus tree, you get what I'm saying, and so on. And don't imagine, please don't imagine that this is a warning that we better get busy or, you know, we're going to get kicked out of God's ranks because it couldn't be further from that. That's why this vine and branch image is so appropriate. What work does a branch do to produce fruit? Do you ever go buy a branch and it's straining and sweating, trying to boop, 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 pop some grapes out or whatever? No, they simply remain attached to the, the stock and the life flows through them from the source. The grapes just grow. That's why he says, apart from me, you're not going to be able to do this. That's what he's, he's, it's a commentary even on Israel. What was happening there? You couldn't do it because it was apart from me. Holy Spirit was with the prophets. But Jesus last week was saying, I'm going to be in you. It's going to be a different, different thing altogether. So it's not so much a command 
as it is a promise. Stick with me, and the result will be God's good intention for you and for this world. And so it's a cause and effect kind of thing. God's intent for our lives is realized in our union with Jesus. And so I guess we need to think about that too, because again, we use terminology as Christians that most of the time we're just saying and we're not even thinking through what we're talking about, like union with Jesus. I mean, how do we remain in him? What does it mean to be in union with Jesus? These, these ideas are baked into Christian thought, but, but you know, thinking through the, 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 the application or what that's going to look like in life, for that matter, what makes a person a Christian? Like, there's a simple question, <laughs> but it's interesting how, if you pose that, how often that becomes one of those things that returns a blank stare. Well, I, you know, <laughs> for many evangelicals, that question is answered by the Roman road. You know, Romans, Romans 10, believe with your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you will be saved, Paul says. Well, there it is. Boom, boom. So for that group, it's belief and confession. For high church traditions, it's participation in the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's table, Eucharist, and, and you, so it's practice. It's, but John 15 shows us something different. Sure, there's belief. Jesus points to his teachings there in verse 3, and producing fruit is always a metaphor for how we live, our ethics, our practice. So it's a way of believing, it's a way of living, but because of what he said in the last chapter about being inhabited by the Holy Spirit, we see that there's actually something else. There's a spiritual union where, where God is in us and we are in God. So being a Christian isn't, isn't just about believing certain things in our mind and it's not just about behaving certain ways in our practice. There's a spiritual dimension to this that's not so easily quantified. When we surrender to Jesus as our Lord, our ruler, we become inhabited by his divine presence who then courses through us to produce reflections of Jesus in our words and in our actions out into the world where we've been placed. It's, it's a spiritual dynamic. It's an inward, internal thing that gets manifested outwardly as we live connected to Jesus. Oh, that's... Pretty mystical stuff there, Rob. I know. I, I mean, listen, and, and I'm the first to admit I'm far more comfortable with intellectual pursuits of faith and doctrine, but Jesus is presenting us with something that is an inescapable reality. Apart from this interior spiritual transformation taking place by our union with Christ, we can't reveal the good that God intends for us to reveal into this world. We, we can't do it. Mere belief in a set of ideas is not going to change things. Mere moralism or, or change of moral behaviors is not going to do it. And listen, this, is the, this has been the whole Babylon project from the Tower of Babylon forward of trying to reproduce this ourselves. We can do it. We can do this stuff. We got the technology. We got the manpower. We can do this. We can believe the right things. We can put our, our efforts into all of this and yet it never comes to anything good. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can't do this. There has to be this infusion of the divine within us to enable us to do this. In Christ, we return to our original vocation of representing God's rule to creation. That's another reason why this vineyard and gardening concept is so important because it's taking us right back to Eden 
where we were image bearers of God into creation, representing God's loving order to the world that he made, where heaven and earth were united in us and through us. That's how we get back there through Jesus. It's through him. It's not a religious system. It's not a set of beliefs or ethical standards. It's the person of Jesus whom we've committed to in relationship because he's committed to us first. And we are now one. It's why marriage becomes a metaphor for the relationship. Again, it's this idea of unification and oneness. Of course, we might wonder then, well, what's, you know, we talk about this oneness, we talk about this relationship, what's the basis for a relationship like this, like you're describing with God? Well, I'm glad you asked. That leads us to the next section, verse 9. Jesus looks at his disciples in my mind and says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Why? Because if it's his joy. This is my commandment. Oops, sorry. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I've loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. No, you, now you are my friends since I've told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. Interesting little part in that, you know, when, uh, when people, when rabbis would gain disciples, the way that worked is that normally a disciple would see a rabbi that he appreciated and wanted to follow, would go and apply to follow, and then, and then the rabbi would interview and make a determination whether or not they were suitable to be his disciple or not. Jesus flipped all that around. Jesus went around and chose every single one of these disciples, invited them to follow him. You didn't choose me. Jesus said, I chose you and I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name as we qualified before. This is my command. Let's actually read that together. This is my command. What is it? Love one another. Let's say that. That sounded so good. I'm sorry. And this is one of those preacher things, but it really sounded good. What? This is my command. Love each other. Man, okay. I love that. It's a, you know... One of the things that when we're trying to understand the scriptures and we're going through them and we're, you know, trying to decipher the, the message behind it, we look for repeated words. Repeated words, repeated patterns that are usually there throughout of that. Well, there's a repeated here, word here. What is it? We just were saying it. It's love. The command to love is repeated throughout this discourse. And here he repeats the command that he gave back in chapter 13 and he repeats it twice. Love each other as I have loved you. This is the primary fruit. We're not going to escape that. Let's let's just realize this is what Jesus is communicating. How many times has he said love in these last few chapters that we've been saying? It's over and over. It's a drumbeat coming to us. It's over and over. The primary fruit that he's expecting from us as his people is to bear this fruit of love. Our union with Christ is revealed in this expression of sacrificial love. In verse 13, Jesus is, is forecasting where his love for us is taking him. 
He's going to lay down his life for us. And if and and so this is what he's calling us to. This same self-sacrificial love is what he wants reproduced in us. And again, we remember this is this is a qualified uh, statement. Love each other as I have loved you. We first have to believe and embrace his love for us before we can become this conduit through whom his love flows. And again, it's why it's emphasized. That's why it's going to be my emphasis until I don't have breath anymore. It's his love for us that changes everything. And listen, believing and accepting and receiving his love, that's an easy thing to say. I can say it, I could say it probably 50 times real fast and receive his love, receive his love. That's a different thing to experience it, to live it, to actually believe it. Right? I mean, you know, I would think that probably most of us in this room would find it far easier to believe in God's love for everyone else in here except for me. You know, well, I'm not so sure about me. I mean, I know the things going on in my mind and heart. I'm too aware of my own shortcomings. I can imagine God maybe tolerates me, but man, he's got to be tired of my messes by now. <laughs> what? Schmesses? I was, what, what did you think I was saying? And and in answer to that, in answer to all of those insecurities and doubts that we feel, in this text right here, Jesus has his hand out, and he's calling us friend. Friend. He makes it clear. I don't want minions. I don't need drones running around doing my bidding. I want a relationship. He wants a relationship, as we described friends last week, a a relationship of mutual affection for each other. And again, notice in verse 14, he doesn't say, I'll be your friend if you keep my command. No, his friendship is assumed. That's already a given. It's a, it's a solidified, unshakable, immutable position he comes from. We are the ones that we question ourselves, so we demonstrate our returned friendship by living from his standard of love. And listen, we talk about love, and again, in our world, it's such a confused, almost nebulous concept. We're not talking about love as an emotional sentiment or some validation of every human impulse, but sacrificial love that looks beyond all of the various conditions we as people fall into and and, and value the dignity of our fellow human being. That's the concept of the love, a love that's willing to embrace and enfold and present to something higher, a higher place of life. God's love for humanity is the fountainhead of all of God's activity in this world. It's all of his values and priorities and purposes that we've been commissioned to carry into this world. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? And that was a common thing you ask a rabbi. And his response is, what? Love God and love your fellow human being. And then he says, all of it gets encapsulated into this concept. It's the fountainhead from which God is doing his work in this world. That's why John, reflecting on this, actually before that, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we can do all kinds of stuff 
We can do all kinds of amazing things in God's name. We can run around and look as holy and cool as as we possibly could. But all of these righteous looking things don't add up to anything if there's not love involved. In fact, he calls it worthless if it's not motivated by love. If God's love is not the fountainhead from which that flows. And John, reflecting on this idea later in life, 1 John 4 says bluntly, Dear friends, let's continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. Why? Because God is love. Man, we say that statement far too easily. You know, God is love. God is love. We throw that around all the time. But are we grasping the enormity of this? You brush against the abyss of that love, boundaryless love. That's God. It stretches on into eternity, this love we're describing here. There's no, there's no end point in it. That's why Paul would say, you know, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. Why? Because faith is going to be fulfilled one day. Hopes get realized. But love has no ending point at all. Love continues on. If you want to know what's eternal and what values that are eternal, that God wants us as the church, as his believers to be embracing and representing into this world, it's got to start with love. And and, Rob, why are you so worked up? I'm worked up because we're not. We're not doing that. I mean, look at the church. Look at the evangelical church as a whole. We're not known for love. I mean, we're not. Let's, let's just, that's a reality. We are not known for love. What are we known for? Judgment? A lot of political nonsense, that's for sure. But where is love in this? And I'm challenging you, Christians. I'm challenging you. It's got to change. Because I said it once before and I still believe it. Ichabod hangs over the head of the evangelical church. We've fallen from our first love. As Jesus said to the church in Laodicea. No, it wasn't Laodicea. It was one of the other churches. Either way, that's the, you know. Brought me down from that real quick, didn't it? (laughs) think you're so smart, could challenge everybody. You don't even know what you're talking about. Maybe I don't. It's, it's possible I don't. Three and, three and a half stars? Well, it's up a half then, right? <laughs> yeah, either, either way. You know, I've said all this all a million times. Here's the thing. I, I You know, we... Oh, did I already... What, how come... Okay. Back down to three. <laughs> 1 John 4, I, I thought I had it on the screen. I must have done something. But I honestly believe 1 John 4 is John's commentary that he wrote on what Jesus was saying here. I challenge you, go read that. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 20. See how it enlarges what it is that Jesus is talking about here and the ways in which John elaborates on how this works itself out in real life experience. But look, uh, we're going to finish there today because I, I lost my place. I don't know what's going on. And there's a lot of stuff to think about 
here, right? I mean, this is stuff to take and meditate on. I'm not the arbiter of truth. I'm not trying to tell. I get passionate about some of these things because I'm so perplexed. I feel like such a foreigner. And so I, 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 but it's stuff that you've got to think about. And the Holy Spirit is one who's going to lead us into truth. So seek his, his guidance on all of this. But Jesus, remember this, that Jesus is the source of our union with God. That union is meant to be a conduit through which God's love is expressed to this world. And it all begins and ends with God's love for us. And so the question then we want to think about is, how can I embrace this love for myself? What's holding me back from that? And then secondary from that, if I can believe that, then what holds me back from expressing love? Help me, Father, to be united with Jesus in this. Let's, let's set out to receive God's great love for us. And then from there, demonstrate that love to a world that so desperately needs it. Because if there's anything, eh, it just sounds like a pop song, but if there is anything that this world needs, it's, it's God's love. Not just love in the abstract, but God's love, that life-changing love that brings his stability and peace in with it. Right on? All right. Well, listen, it's the, the last Sunday of the month, and so this is when we as a church community We'll be celebrating the communion of the bread and cup. And um, you basically, what's, what's communion? What's that mean? Well, it's, I'm glad you asked. It's Latin for communio. It means sharing something in common. So this is where we, as a community, share our, our, our union with Christ. We share in that common union that we have with Christ. So not only are we united with Christ, but we're united with each other uh, because of this. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed... He gathered with his disciples as best we can tell to celebrate the Passover meal. We've been reading about all of that in John's gospel, how that all went down. Remember, Jesus washed their feet and all of that. But then he also, during the Passover meal, interrupted it in two distinct places where he took the afikomen bread, which was at the end of the ceremony, and he broke it and handed it out to all of the people that were present, his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. So he was forecasting what he was about to do, going to the cross on our behalf to, as he said here, lay down his life for his friends, for his friends. And then at the end of the meal, you had the, the cup of redemption, and he would have been passing that around. And he said, drink this. This is a new covenant in my blood. So it's a represent, I believe it's a representation. The, the, the drink becomes a representation of the blood that he poured out on the cross. And you've heard me say many times the mechanics of that, exactly the one-to-one explanation of how this works or what it accomplished. There's a lot to contemplate and consider in that, and it's not spelled out very neatly for us in scriptures. But the result is that we have been given new life, and not just new life as people bouncing around this mean old world by ourselves, but new life in community. Because one of the things that Jesus was doing there in the Passover meal was celebrating a uh, what's called a covenant meal, a, a reminder of who the Israelites were and who they belonged to. That's what this becomes for us, a reminder of who we are and who we belong to, what's been accomplished for us and what wonderful future awaits each of us as, as his plans unfold in life and in this world. Uh, so we're going to pray over the elements here. 
we're going to invite you to come to this table or there's a table in the back as well. Oh, thank you so much, Margaret. Um, and uh, we're going to uh, take this. You can take this, go back to your seat. Uh, you can share it as a group of people, share it as a family, share it by yourself. But in all of it, let's at least acknowledge each other. Look up from what we're doing once in a while. Give a smile. Give an acknowledgement of our fellow human being redeemed in Christ. Uh, let his love flow through us and fill this place as we, as we commemorate the love that he showed in laying down his life for us. This is how we are united with him. So, Father, we thank you uh, for what you've done. Thank you for the way in which you've redeemed us and you draw us into yourself to give us new life and to bring hope into this world. Lord, there's so many things going on in this world and we are plagued with 24-hour news that pumps all of that negativity into our homes, into our minds, into our thinking, and all it does is cast us downward. But you promised us. You said when we see things happening, oh, look up, look up. Your redemption's that much closer. And so, Father, we, we count ourselves as blessed and grateful for being the recipients of your salvic love. And we believe that they're symbolized in these elements. And so we, we remember this bread, Father, as a representation of your body going to the cross, bearing for us the consequence of sin and removing it from us. And we count this cup as a representation of your blood by which we now have a new dynamic of relationship, not one based on keeping a code of laws or rules, based entirely on your sacrificial love for us. Help us to take this love in, receive it from you, and express it into the world. And we pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So we've got the table here in the front, the table in the back. Each table has uh, allergy-free breads if you need them. Um, So we'll take these. The band's going to play, and then we'll meet back together and dismiss with a song. But love each other in the process here, guys.
make us more than noises. Make us more than noises. Amen. 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 My grandson, he calms me down. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Father, that in that love, you transform us and you call us into being as the people you intended. Continue that good work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, real quick before we go. I love how so surprised you are right now. I'm going rogue. He doesn't know. (laughs) But there is a plan. You just don't know about it. Yesterday was, I believe, your 40th wedding anniversary. (laughs) So my sister's bringing my mom up here. (laughs) Thank you. Good job, Jessica. So happy anniversary. So you're, uh, I always call them my worthless brothers. You call them your sons. But they're coming in with a cake right now. Are you kidding me? Come on. Anniversary to you. Happy anniversary to you. Happy anniversary, Robin Robin. Look at this. It's a 40 more Teresa Willis, this she was the brain power behind all this. She approached me, Lisa and Julie, but they've been passing around a card, so you can see that. Oh, you guys! We just thought we love cake and we love you guys, so why not? (laughs) Thank you so much. So everybody, come get cake, and y'all come get the first piece. Okay. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. My microphone is on. Uh,